Well, good afternoon, Cheryl. How are you today? It is officially, you know, we're past Thanksgiving. We're in the middle of Christmas. So uh, I am, I'm actually looking forward to the season. And I know we record prior to going live, but I already feel fairly ahead of the game. So I'm feeling rather jolly, despite the fact that the holiday traffic has already started up. I hit some delays just driving over here to meet you today. And for any of our listeners who live in Atlanta, you know that holiday traffic with the daytime weekday shoppers can just be one more layer of fun and excitement to our already hectic Atlanta traffic. Exactly. So we had some different topics planned for December. Exactly. We were trying to keep it fun and and holly jolly, but we also like to stay current with what's going on in the news. And after our brief discussion this week, we decided this was a hot topic in the news right now that's important enough to have its own episode. Exactly. We, you know, sometimes we'll do something like in the news at the very beginning. And so I had originally pulled this as a let's talk about it briefly at the beginning and go on with whatever our topic was but this thing in and of itself warranted its own episode and I think it's really important for people to know and and I a lot of times will take every month because I have a monthly LinkedIn newsletter I'll take whatever it is that we're talking about and we'll make I'll make it that topic and so this was this is my topic for December as well on LinkedIn I think it's something that that warranted its own time. Small hint to our listeners, we will put a link to sign up for Cheryl's LinkedIn newsletter in the show notes, because if you're not already subscribed to that, there's so much great information there. And the topic that she's referencing for December is pretty disturbing. And it's it doesn't go along with our, our jolly feeling, but it is important enough to cover because if you're looking for ways to reach out and touch your past clients, your sphere of influence, your current clients, website content, blog content, social media content, this is something that you're definitely going to want to reach out and let people know about because it is, it is really harming consumers. And that is these multi-year or even multi-decade brokerage agreements. Yes. So let me set the stage as we start this conversation, just in case there's anyone listening who who hasn't heard about these at all, or maybe they've, they've heard whispers about it, but they're not super familiar. So let's say that I'm a homeowner, and I'm a homeowner in Florida, because right. that's where this has been rampant, although it's not isolated to Florida. It's definitely happening in Georgia, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania. In fact, I read that this one specific brokerage, and we won't mention names. Right. You can find them if you Google this or if you look at any of the links in our show notes. Exactly. But this one specific brokerage is operating in 33 states and has over 500 licensees as their agents. So it's a pretty widespread possible phenomenon. So I'm a homeowner in Florida, and Cheryl, I'm going through a little bit of financial difficulty. And I am looking for ways, maybe I'm a little embarrassed, maybe I'm reluctant to talk to my friends or my family about my financial woes. I'm looking for ways to accomplish a quick fix to my money worries, or maybe it's not even a quick permanent fix. I just need something to get me through. Exactly. Maybe you had something unforeseen that happened. And people will get embarrassed even when they're not the ones who actually caused it. I mean, life happens to us. Sure. So I have some sort of financial difficulty and I'm looking for money. So I'm probably Googling. And I'm looking online and I have found a homeowner benefit program. Another article I read said that it looked like it was a government grant, right? Right. So it's been camouflaged as something helpful, beneficial, and positive. 
So I fill out the online application. I get a call from them. They tell me that I've qualified for $1,300. And I'm excited because they tell me I can have the cash in my account in just a couple of days. So I make an appointment. It all sounds good to me. A notary shows up in my driveway. They don't even have to come into my home. I sign the paperwork and the next day the money shows up in my account. Nothing bad happens to me until a couple of months later I've decided to take advantage of this amazing real estate market and sell my house because I think that I am going to be able to capitalize on the equity I have in my home. And all of a sudden, a company pops up and they block my home sale. They tell me that I have signed a 40-year listing agreement with them. And in some cases, they may have even put a lien on my property. They've recorded the notarized paperwork that I signed that I thought was a grant or a homeowner benefit program. And it turns out that I have signed away 40 years of the freedom to sell my home with whatever agent I choose for whatever price I want. And now I'm locked in. And not only am I locked in, it's not just tied to me. It's tied to my house for 40 years. My heirs, if I die, they are locked into it. And possibly, even if I sell with them, subsequent owners are locked in for that 40-year period. This sounds to me like my worst nightmare as a realtor and as someone (laughs) who likes to exercise my free will. What do you make of this? You know, this is something that we started to see because you have the title companies that operate in multiple states are letting letting us all know what we're seeing. Uh, the American Land Title Association, which is our trade organization, uh, is very good at communicating what's going on nationally because what do, does start in, you know, one state like Florida is going to end up in, in other places uh, so that we all know about it. And from our perspective, one of the things that we are, are seeing is that we we have to contend with it. And there's really nothing that we can do. You know, I'm an attorney, but not a judge. Uh, mm-hmm. So I can't, I can't really do anything to eliminate this thing that is out there. There is one main company that you'll see in the news, but they are not the only company. In fact, the first one that we physically saw in what related to one of our transactions was not that company. It was another company that was doing, just had a similar mode of operating because they see an opportunity. They see a new angle, a new business model, and they incorporate it and they bring it in and this is what they're doing. I have mixed feelings about it. The most important thing that we can do as real estate attorneys and as real estate agents is actively communicate to past clients, potential clients, the public at large that are homeowners that this thing is out there and that they need to be reading everything that they are signing. But they also need to understand that, you know, there really is no such thing as a free lunch. So if someone's giving you money, you're giving away some rights for that. And you need to make sure that you understand exactly what those rights are. If it seems too good to be true, in my opinion, it's definitely too good to be true. You know, there are very few opportunities for any sum of money that come with no strings attached. Correct. And this one, though, to me, seems particularly heinous because they appear to be preying on those who have financial difficulties. You could argue that they're also going to eventually prey on the elderly. You know, we've talked about that in, in past episodes. Keeping an eye on our our seniors, right. keeping an eye on people who may be lonely, may sign things without a full understanding of what they're signing, even if they've read it. Right. 
that's the other thing is we need to convince our our clients and our sphere of influence and and our friends and families and anyone who's reading our social media or our blogs not just to read before they sign but to make sure you understand exactly what you're signing or ask someone else to look at it as well. Yes. So someone who would be uh, competent to do so, whether they have a family friend who is very business oriented or uh, an attorney take a look at it mm-hmm. or another real estate agent take a look at it just so that they get an alternate perspective as to what the, what it may mean would be important to do. Because I do think part of the defense that the companies have out there is that they, they even have FAQs that are fairly obvious, that are big block printed, that do explain what it is that people are doing but you know what people actually understand as to what their ongoing obligations are going to be particularly for something that's 40 we don't even do mortgages for 40 years <laughs> so to have an agreement for you know for a particular brokerage company to list your house for the next 4 decades it feels like it is overreaching definitely when we talk about that 40-year period, four decades of having the exclusive right to list and sell your home, when I think about a typical brokerage agreement, which of course, I'm reluctant to use the word typical. Right. There is no typical. There is no standard. We have to avoid the word typical for a lot of things with regard to real estate because we haven't all colluded together and agreed that this is going to be our standard commission rate. This is going to be our standard brokerage agreement length. Right. Right. So if, I, if I'm using the word typical in a way simply to draw a line between 40 years and exactly. quote unquote more normal, yes. right? I would say anywhere from three months to six months, maybe up to 12 months. It can depend a lot on the seller's motivation. It can depend on your relationship with the seller. It can depend on the uniqueness of the property, the price range, how typical, to use that word again, is the property for the area that it's located. Exactly. And how, what are the average days on market at that point? Because the answer in 2021 may be different than the answer in 2023. Absolutely. As to how long, how long a brokerage agreement would be, uh, how long you're going to wait after you enter into a brokerage agreement to actually begin marketing the property because there may be other things that are going on. So you may have a later marketing start date than you have the the term of the brokerage agreement. Yeah, I think that those things would all affect it. But clearly, I think most people would think two years is excessive. Yes. Now we need to times that. By 20. By 20. See, I can do math, Cheryl. Exactly. Occasionally, I can do math if it's simple enough. I like to tell people I went to law school to avoid math, but I definitely understand money. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can all agree, for the sake of argument, but also for practicality, that 40 years is so far from typical. It's so far from anything that any consumer or real estate agent would consider reasonable, rational, logical, normal. Right. All of those adjectives. But the other question that I have that's more, to me, it's more relevant than how long should or would a typical brokerage agreement be is this payment in exchange for a signed listing agreement. Is it illegal to pay someone? I don't know that it's illegal or even unethical, but it seems very strange to me because I would never nor have I ever taken money up front in exchange for a seller's signature on a listing agreement. Exactly. Neither taken it nor given it, right? Exactly. There's nothing under the Georgia Code that makes it illegal. 
I would imagine that the states that they are entering into, they're doing some amount of due diligence to make sure that there's nothing in the Georgia code or in that state's code that would make that illegal. Typically, the government is less concerned with money going to a consumer than they are the consumer having to pay out money. So it's not something that we would have necessarily have thought to write rules about because we didn't see that it was something that could possibly happen. So the payment in and of itself doesn't form any basis of making something illegal. It's so interesting to me, and I almost feel like it could lead to it becoming illegal in the future. That goes into what is being given up. And if you start to look at, and there have been some, some of the news reporting, news is what it is, right? They have their own agenda when they're writing a news article. And sometimes I fully believe what they're saying, but maybe that's because they're in my particular silo and they think the way I think. So obviously they must be right. But there have been some suggestions in the news reports that the targeting for this has been a lower income, lower educated, and a potentially minority. So it is one of those things we, we look at in the law, and we've done a lot of things in, in recent court cases about things that may not be on their face illegal, but have a disparate impact on Mm -hmm. certain populations. Mm -hmm. So we talk about it when I teach the fair housing class about whether you can use uh, criminal background checks or people's credit scores for leasing. And part of the reason that the courts are looking at those is because objectively you would think that it would be fine that we could look at someone's criminal background and just say, if you have a prior conviction for anything, then you don't qualify. But in doing that, you have a disparate impact on certain communities Mm. and those communities tend to be populated with uh, particular minority groups that we we would prefer to protect and not victimize. It feels very much similar to predatory lending practices that we yes like experienced that go back decades and decades but that we definitely experienced that partially or very much to blame for the foreclosure crisis and yes and well and that the like who that affected now by the time we got into the depths of the mortgage crisis it was a lot of people right mm-hmm. <laughs> but part of it started out you could definitely see it as someone who was a closing attorney back then I could see terms being offered to people and I couldn't prove that they differed, but I sure saw a pattern. Right. And, and there was a, a definite feeling that people were not being treated equally. So we talked about this a little bit before we hit record and I just used the word predatory. Right. Is this predatory under the legal definition of that word? Is there a legal definition of predatory? Or if we're stretching to say that there's a legal definition, does it fit under what has been defined as predatory in the past, dealing with the mortgage crisis, the foreclosure crisis, and like you said, a disparate impact on those of lower education, lower income, and higher risk areas? I think the law really looks at even what the common definition of predatory is, is which is going to be something that serves to or intends to exploit or oppress a group of people or you know individuals, not necessarily in a protected class group, but people in general. It's not that we necessarily can, can label it as predatory and it thus becomes illegal. The issue is if it starts to feel and look predatory, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, then the government is going to see it as predatory and they're going to create laws Mm. uh, that prevent it. 
And we have had that here in Georgia, we had a series of instances where particularly older homeowners were victimized by people who would come to their houses and tell them that they need a new roof and you sign this paperwork and we'll put the new roof on and what they actually did was mortgage their property and when they didn't weren't able to pay for the new roof then they were actually foreclosed on and they lost their house Mm. we created the georgia fair lending act and the only thing that always gives me pause as someone who's not exactly pro-blanket regulation of everything is that that law that was aimed at just that did a lot of other things too. Um, And you can argue that the other things that they did were good and the other unintended consequences were okay because what that law did was say that if you had uh, charges above a certain percentage level based upon the loan amount, the note became wholly unenforceable. So we had things like prepayment penalties that disappeared at that time. None of us are crying about the fact that we don't we haven't had prepayment penalties in Georgia in the last 15 years but my constant concern when we talk about the government regulating something is that they're going to go too far or they're not going to see an unintended consequence and what I don't necessarily want to do is curtail the ability of real estate agents to come up with novel marketing opportunities and things to offer people that need it so I have very mixed feelings about all of this You and I, growing up in the same generation, we know how a bill becomes a law because we watch Schoolhouse Rock. Absolutely. And we've had enough experience in our professional lives through our advocacy actions and through working with realtor associations to know that there's never a law that just accomplishes one thing. Exactly. There's never a group of lawmakers who get together and say, let's pass this one law to stop this one bad thing from happening because it becomes a bargaining chip. Not to go down too far down the rabbit hole, but we know that, you know, this legislator will agree to support this other person's bill if you tack on this amendment and then you tack on this amendment. And by the time you get to the point where you can pass the law that fixes the bad thing, we're now either unraveling other good things, trying to fix other bad things, not to oversimplify it, or creating opportunities for these unintended consequences. I know you well enough to know that we feel the same way about overregulation of industry, especially the real estate industry. We would love the government to have their hands out of what we do, Correct. especially as a small business owner, which you and I both are, and the majority of our colleagues are as well. Correct. We want the opportunity, as you said, to come up with creative marketing schemes, to come up with, and I don't mean scheme in a negative way. No, no. Um, It is perfectly okay to disrupt the industry. Yes. Absolutely. Even if we we ignore the fact that we tack on other things, my constant issues with the regulation that we have had and the, the real estate, particularly in the financing and closing side of things, have been regulated time and time again since the mortgage meltdown. And there are there are pieces of what what were done that were really, really, really good. Mm. Um, You know, borrowers almost always know exactly what their costs are going to be when they sit down at a closing table, which is starkly different than the first five to 10 years of my business, where I felt like I was telling people things for the very first time at the closing table. You probably were. I was. uh, You know, what what debts they were going to have to pay off as part of it, what their cost to close was going to be. They didn't even know Mm -hmm. uh, until they sat down at the table sometimes. But there are other pieces of it where you clearly know that the people who write these laws do not practice in our industry. And I don't know that they listen to enough people in our industry when they write the laws so they don't even know what they don't know. That's 
definitely true. And again, going back to our advocacy efforts at the local, state, and national level through realtor associations, that's one of the reasons it's so important. If you're listening to this and you are a realtor, to be involved in advocacy at all three levels, be aware of what's going on, read those emails from your governmental affairs director, from your local and state association, and truly be in touch when you're asked to or when you see something that's truly concerning. Well, and your industry and mine, well, I guess ours, since I'm both a realtor and an attorney, I mean, you know, the American Land Title Association will send things out and they will give us the the responses that we should send and let us know who we should be contacting yes. and how we should be voicing our opinion. And we all need to remember to do those things because had we not done it, we wouldn't have a 1031 exchange program mm-hmm. anymore. You know, there are very concrete ways that we need to get involved. I just am not sure what to do about this thing. One of the articles that I read, and again, for everyone listening, please check out the show notes. We always put a number of really helpful links for you with some articles to give you more background of things that we don't have time to cover or discuss in detail. But one of the articles that I read said that one of these companies says these are not liens. They are memorandums that are being filed into the county real estate records. But the consequences of this memorandum versus this lien seem to be exactly the same, which is you don't have the right to list with anybody else for 40 years. So what is the true difference if they're really are we splitting hairs with memorandums versus liens? It doesn't matter. You can use a different word if you want to, but all of these things create what we consider a cloud on the title. So we can't ignore it. We had crazy things that got filed into the public records leading into the mortgage meltdown as people were trying to create things that would stop foreclosure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, these were the recordings of people who claimed to be not U.S. citizens and not under direct control uh, of the U.S. government. Therefore, the government can't foreclose upon them. I had one person who filed a, he actually filed with the patent office to protect his own name. He registered it as a copyright and then he filed a lawsuit against the lender for using his name in the foreclosure publications. Uh, And then he took all of that suit information and dumped it into the title records to try and create some sort of a cloud. And I can tell you that whether they call this a memorandum or they call this a lien, the title company is not going to be able to take a pass on this thing. Because what they know is the whole purpose of title insurance is you have another company's attorneys out there to fight for you. What they're supposed to be insuring against is the things we don't know about, the things Mm -hmm. that were hidden or came during the title gap or came right after closing because people didn't tell the truth or didn't know that something was about to happen. Things that happen afterward that we aren't able to see coming prior to. Or the Uh, mystery heir from 50 years ago, right? The great, great aunt who left a portion of the property to her descendants and they show up Exactly. Four weeks after closing and don't understand why the house has been bulldozed and the land is being developed for a subdivision. Yeah. And, you know, all of the other heirs get together and decide to hide the fact that they're this one problem child, grandchild is sitting out there. But the title companies, the one that came up here in Georgia that I was directly involved with, I sent it over to the title company because I had serious questions, quite frankly, about the document that was filed in the county records. It doesn't meet the execution standards for the state of Georgia to even create a 
building or a memorandum or anything else. It was electronically signed by the homeowners, which we in Georgia allowed for some amount of signing during COVID that allowed things to be done remotely, but never was it digital executions. That's not something that exists here. It does exist in other states, but it exists with a required format. And I don't believe what I saw would have been sufficient in any state. It was electronically signed by the homeowners and then it was electronically notarized by a notary sitting in another state. There's no evidence that they were ever in communication with one another. It is a very poorly crafted document, yet the title company will not take a pass on it because they they are not going to sign up for a fight that we already see here coming. They are also aware that although they weren't familiar with the particular company that came up with regard to my file, they are aware of the one that's making the news and that company is actively filing lawsuits to enforce their agreements and so they have dozens and dozens and dozens of court cases out there where they've filed suit. And to use maybe not the best analogy but the one that popped into my head it's like a pre-existing condition being covered by your health insurance. It's exactly like that. It's a pre-existing condition for your property that the title insurance company says, that's not a good risk for us. Exactly. What about states though, and I know Georgia is not one of them, but there must be several states that limit the length of a listing agreement. Because in my mind, that seems like something that a state real estate commission and state legislators might jump on board with if we're looking at consumer protection. What will be the outcome potentially in states that do limit the term of a brokerage agreement or Do you think these companies are just avoiding those states because they've done that much research? They're actually in one of the states, and I believe, and uh, the news reports are in the show notes, so it can correct me if I'm incorrect about the state, but I believe it's Pennsylvania. It's either Pennsylvania or Ohio that has a, a, I think, believe it is a six-month term limit on brokerage agreements, so you can't have a brokerage agreement longer than six months in that state. And what the company is arguing is that what's getting recorded in the record books and what is uh, what is being agreed to right now is not the actual listing agreement. It's an agreement to enter into a listing agreement. So that's sort of their devious loophole for still being able to enforce this 40-year situation in a state that limits Yes. The so, so what they're saying is that for the next 40 years, if there is a listing, it goes to them. Once it does go to them, the term can't exceed six months. And under that state's laws, if the homeowner did enter into a six-month listing agreement with them and the house didn't sell during that period of time, then they may be out of it at that point. But they would have to list with them. And then you also run into the issue of, well, what happens if you do list with them and you get a ready, you know, willing and able buyer, but it's not one that you want to accept, you may still have liability because the agent may have been seen to have earned their commission at that point. Mm. I know you said that you have mixed feelings about the concept, but I know that you don't have mixed feelings about the, the predatory aspect. I just have mixed feelings about how we fix it. I don't think that this is a positive thing 
to be happening. And that's pretty much been when they asked, there is at least one person in the news article who is an attorney and a real estate agent. So he kind of sits in the same, in the same shoes that I'm in where he knows the real estate industry very well, but he also holds a law license. The feelings of the people that were, were knowledgeable were saying that it didn't smell right, that it didn't feel right. And it's certainly not a positive thing to be happening. I feel for the people who have signed these, I'm also a big proponent of personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so I think that what we can do, the people who are listening to this, is to make sure that people out there who, who are homeowners understand the importance of really knowing what it is that they're agreeing to and, and not allowing for something that is just a short-term fix to become a long-term obligation. Yeah. Now, interestingly, here in Georgia, we do know that this company or, or companies are practicing right. real estate in this way here in our state. So if you're listening to this and you're a Georgia realtor, you absolutely should be crafting ways to reach out to everyone that you care about, your past clients, your fans, your family, your sphere of influence. How would this survive under our Georgia license law? Because when we look at the license law, and I will, of course, we'll put this in the show notes as well, there is a section of our license law which states that licensees shall not engage in any of the following unfair trade practices. And the one that you pasted into our notes for this episode reads just like this. Filing a listing contract or any document or instrument purporting to create a lien based on a listing contract for the purpose of casting a cloud upon the title to real estate when no valid claim under said listing contract exists. How do we address what we've been talking about in relation to this piece of license law? And is this potentially a way for these licensees to lose their licenses? The problem is it's really good until you get to the very end of that statement where it says no valid claim mm. under said listing agreement exists. Like if you could just cut out the last nine words of it, I think we would be in a much better place. And as I was preparing for this, because I teach license law, obviously, and that's item 24 of like 30 something possible unfair trade practices that real estate agents have to avoid. In my head, it was you're not supposed to throw anything into the record that creates clouds. But here it says we're no valid claim. And so their legal argument will be in court that they do have a valid claim Mm -hmm. because they have a valid listing agreement or a valid contract to enter into a listing agreement. Don't you mean memorandum? Uh, yeah. <laughs> sure, whatever um, they want to call it. And and going back to the example you gave of the digitally signed agreement that was then notarized by digital notary signature and the notary was in a completely other state, with that not being a legal way to execute legal documents in Georgia, how do we rationalize that or how do we justify that? Well, how do they justify that? I I don't know that it's been brought in front of anyone. I would love to see what the Georgia Real Estate Commission thinks about a document that was executed in this way and recorded into the Georgia record books, not meeting the recording standards for Georgia. I also wish, honestly, that the clerk of court wouldn't have recorded it because it doesn't meet the recording standards. You know, my first review of it, that wasn't the first thing that popped up at me Mm. because I'm looking at... I was looking at what the meat of the document was, 
But in that situation, I'm thinking that if you're going through it fairly quickly, and the clerks are, they're just processing paperwork, and there is only so much responsibility they're supposed to take as to what does or does not get recorded. I'm not surprised that they did record it, that they may have missed the way that it was executed. But I would be curious to see what the Georgia Real Estate Commission thinks because they do have oversight over the real estate brokerage that is recording these types of documents into the record books. I'm not sure that anyone's brought it before them. I would love to talk to Lynn Dempsey about it, who is our commissioner. (laughs) And I may actually reach out to him to have a conversation because, again, as you mentioned earlier in this recording, we have to be careful we should celebrate disruption when it is not harming a consumer or operating in a predatory way. Right. Disruption is great. Unique, new, creative business models are great if it's truly an asset to the industry and it makes us look good and it's a creative way for homeowners to actually achieve their dreams and wishes for homeownership and right. property ownership and investment. The other thing that I want to talk about before we uh, start to wrap up is related to one of our episodes from last month, from November. If you haven't had a chance yet to listen to our title monitoring versus title insurance episode, the company that we're talking about, and there will be a link in the show notes to the Yahoo Finance article about this, one of these companies who's executing these 40-year listing agreements also offers, if you sign up with them, free title monitoring. And to me, that's just a slap in the face once you realize what they're actually doing, which is they're saying, we're going to offer you this title monitoring service for free. Well, of course, they're monitoring title. They're looking to see if you've tried to sell your house with someone else. This is one more way that they are protecting themselves, but making it look like they're serving the consumer. Absolutely. I uh, almost fell out of my chair on that one. I'm like, okay, well, I guess the positive is they're the only company that I've seen out there that didn't use the word lock in their name. At least they clearly labeled it as just a monitoring service. But obviously the real reason that they are monitoring the title to the property is to determine whether they should sue you. Yes. There is always the possibility that they could happen upon some transfer of the title that you would want to know about, Mm -hmm. but that's not the reason that they are doing it. And you mentioned they don't use the word lock in the name of the title monitoring service, but they do use the word safe. And that is (laughs) extremely misleading in this case because it is only making things safe for the protection of their interests in your property. And to cover once again what these homeowners get in exchange for signing this document, this article in Yahoo Finance says that it enables homeowners through their homeowner benefit program, which by the way, has a little trademark R next to it. So they have trademarked this program, enables homeowners to receive a cash incentive of up to $5,000, up to $5,000. And you said you saw somewhere that there was as little as 300 in some cases. I didn't even see one that came close to 5,000, like for the ones that were public, that were talking to the news. I believe the highest one I saw was Mm $1,300. There may have been one that was a little bit more than that, but there were at least two in there that were in the three and the $500 range. I want to take a minute and let that sink in. For those of you who are listening, up to a maximum of $5,000 to sign away the rights to list and sell your home for the next 40 years. Exactly. Terrifying stuff. As we start to wrap up this discussion, 
I think we've hit the important points that our, our listeners and, and any consumers, of course, should should know. Given people enough information to know that this is something that they need to educate themselves about because they may get calls from a past client. They may get calls from a prospective client and they may get questions when we say, if you get something like this, you should ask an attorney, you should ask another real estate agent. We want the real estate agents to know this thing is out here so that they can answer some questions. As we are educating our clients about this, if you're listening and you are a realtor in any state, one thing that I would strongly suggest you do, and we will have an episode on this in much more detail in January, so stay tuned, but make it a part of your regular pre-listing process to have the closing attorney or the title company with whom you work most closely run a preliminary title search on your listings before you get them in the MLS, before you receive offers, before you're a week out from closing and realize that there's a problem. One of the things that I love to do and that Cheryl has facilitated for me over the years is running those preliminary title searches before we take a listing, because we may have some work to do to make sure there are no blemishes on the title. Now, in this case, if we find that this homeowner has signed one of these 40-year agreements, there may be very little that we can do. Right. But at least you would know up front before anyone starts a lawsuit. But there are so many other things, which again, we'll cover in more detail in that episode next month. But the reasons you should run a preliminary title search are far and many. Exactly. So any closing thoughts on this, Cheryl, before we end this episode and promise our listeners one more fun holly jolly episode before the end of the year? We talked about my LinkedIn article earlier on, and it will be out there. It's something that you can share out. You can share it out not only on LinkedIn, but on Facebook, on Instagram, however you normally try and communicate with people. I also post it onto my smartstips.com website so that people, even if they don't have LinkedIn, will get access to the information. But I really think that putting this out there gives you a, a good reason to reach out to people, to put your name in front of them. I'm a huge believer that our marketing should include delivering value to past clients or to potential future clients. And this one I think would be a great way to do it. I think people will be interested in it and you may save someone from signing something that they didn't really understand. This is a huge value add. And if you struggle with reasons, finding reasons to reach out to your clients and your past clients and your sphere of influence, that big database that I know you all have, if you struggle to find valuable reasons to reach out, this is definitely one that we want you to take advantage of and reach out, educate, inform, warn. And, be part of the solution. And and be part of the solution. And let's help keep our databases of consumers safe from something that could be considered predatory and, and dangerous for them. Absolutely. On that note, please tune in to our bonus episode that we are so excited for you to hear. We are going to release that next week on December 21st. And it's a special holiday episode just for you. Have a great holiday, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Real Smart. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and share with your friends.